0: When I first learned about somatic experience, about four or five months later, it was Hashanah Rabbah, inevitably. It happens every year. I'm standing in my kitchen, and I'm about to go into that state of panic. And I suddenly started to do a somatic exercise, standing right there in my mess. And all of a sudden, I found myself breathing, and I found myself calmer. And I realized that I don't have to be in that Hashanah Rabbah messed, crazy headspace, I can really regulate myself. Hi,
1: I'm Tanya, and you're listening to episode 20 of Human and Holy, a podcast by The Tanya Project, where we discuss spiritual ideas in human terms. Today's episode is sponsored, Eloi Nishmas, Chaya Risa, Bas Bendit. May the learning done through today's episode be an aliyah for her neshama, and may her family and friends find comfort after her passing. To sponsor an episode or become a supporter on Patreon, please reach out at humanandholy at gmail.com. In today's episode, I speak with Dina Gorkin, who is my former boss and someone I really admire for her involvement in teenage education in a way that is really forward thinking and devoted to every single student. Today, Dina speaks about escafia as a powerful tool in education as well as something that has shifted the internal operations of her own life. And though I was familiar with the term escafia before we spoke, I found her description to be absolutely brilliant. Escafia is not just about waiting 5 extra minutes before biting into a cookie. It is actually the original Torah source for the entire concept of emotional regulation. If Chassidus is all about making conscious choices, then iskafia is the ultimate tool that we need to get there. It's the moment of pause where we get to decide who we want to be.
0: Hi, I'm Dina Gorkin. I'm the principal of no Academy. I I'm already stuck. Look at that. <laughs> that was so tell us your
1: titles. Definitely tell us your titles. Yeah, I know it feels weird. I like I don't care to do it, but like, I'll, okay, all right, ready? Yeah, I think it's I here think goes. it's nice just for anyone who doesn't know you to get some context about what you do. It's not bragging, I promise. It's really not. We want <laughs> right. to hear it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay, Go it. here goes. Hi, I'm Dina Gorkin. I am the principal of Benoist mm-hmm. Academy. I do a Machaneches training program for Machanchos teachers all, over, all across the country through Menachem Education Foundation. I do community education for Operation Survival, which is a substance abuse prevention program in Crown Heights. And I teach in Beis Rifka Seminary in the teacher training program and the Seminary Aleph as well.
1: Nice. Wow. You're someone that I admire so much in the way that you approach education. It's like you're involved in so many different education pools and it makes so much sense. Everyone wants you to work for them. <laughs> it's just the reality. Okay, so let's get right into the topic that you're going to be exploring with us today. The topic of iscafia as it relates to education specifically. So why don't you begin just by introducing the concept?
0: Okay. So before I introduce that, I really have to say something to you about what you're doing. And that is, I love the title of your podcast, Human and Holy, because, you know, for those who know how the Rebbe would always give brachas, it was always a bracha for gashmias and ruchnias in that order. It was the physical and then the spiritual. The human and holy is that same order of things. We have to be human in order to be holy, right? Because angels, malachim, they're part of the higher world and they don't get to do mitzvah, So they can't become holier. They are static. Whatever they are, they are. Only humans can become holy. Nice. So I love that. And here's where I have to do a little bragging because one of my sons was once traveling. He was on Shlifos in Venezuela. And he was at a stopover, like you can't fly directly to Venezuela. So he was laid over at an airport and he was sitting, minding his own business, looking like a bacher, wearing his hat and jacket and just sits us out. Right. And there was a little boy, probably nine or 10 years old, staring at him. Okay. And he noticed the little boy staring at him. And finally, the little boy, I guess, got up the nerve to approach him. And he said to him, what's that costume you're wearing? and my son explained to him you know i this is what i wear i'm i'm jewish etc cetera, etc cetera. asked him if he was jewish and he said no and they had a whole little nice conversation at the end of which the little boy he's just mesmerized by this whole aura of my son with the beard and the whole business and he says do you have any superpowers oh. and my son without missing a beat says yes I can take regular objects and make them holy. Ooh. And I got chills when he first told me that story. I was like, how did you come up with that? But it was really incredible. That's the whole idea of human and holy. Yes, we're human. And the only way that we can be holy is because we're human. It's the gift of being human. Yeah. That's beautiful. I love the way you took that human in order to be holy. Like you have to be
1: human first in order to be holy. That's beautiful. Thank you. Okay,
0: so now tell us. Now about what you asked. (laughs) So the idea of iscafia is the idea of taking our physical wants and desires and occasionally pushing them aside to make room for something higher right? To make room for what Hashem wants from us. And it doesn't mean living an ascetic life. I was just reading a story of the Rebbe when they wanted to give him a new car. Everybody was like standing outside in front of 770 because word got out that the Rebbe was going to get a new car. It was carefully designed. And I heard I don't know if this is true, but I heard that the rep didn't even chose the fabric for the interior and everyone was standing around waiting and they pulled up the new car. The Rebbe was waiting to go to the aisle. The Rebbe looked at the car and he said, where's the car that I went in yesterday? And they realized right away, the Rebbe does not want this new car. And they quickly brought the car, the regular car that the Rebbe went in. And I heard that eventually after the Rebbe's passing, the Rebbe gave this car to one of the... People that used to help the Rebbezen as a gift. Oh wow! So people were like trying to guess. Oh my goodness! The Rebbe was is doing iskafia. He really wanted the new car, but gave it up because you know he didn't want to have this fancy, luxurious physical thing. But that's not a good example of iskafia. First of all, iskafia is not the job of tzaddikim. The job of tzaddikim is habcha to take something physical and completely transform it. The job of a regular person striving to be a bainani is to just a little bit push away those things that become our great desires the things that we don't necessarily need we might want them but we don't necessarily need them and so the story of the rebbe with the car is not a good example because he's a rebbe. for us we, we want to do iskafya. And what does skafia mean for us it means if we want something that's really, really special, just maybe delaying that for a moment. But it doesn't mean denying ourselves things. It means the concept in psychology of delayed gratification, pushing away something that's permitted. Because, of course, with Escoffia, we're not talking about things that are forbidden. We're talking about things that are permitted. but exercising our escoffia muscles so that we become better and better at delaying gratification and doing first that which would give the ebster nachas. So within education, it's something that is really important for teachers, parents, anyone dealing with children from a very young age to get them used to this idea that Everything that Hashem put in the Gashmi Yastikah world that's permitted for us is there for us to use for Kedusha, is there for us to use for a mitzvah. But not everything that's there do we have to use. And that's the difference. Where does it come in in terms of, let's say I work with high school students. So where does it come in in terms of working with high school students? Today's Hayam yam speaks about something called the Frum or the Chassidish Yetzir right? The Chassidish Nefesh is. What is that? That's when a person is supposed to be doing one thing, and the Yetzir wants to sort of mess with them. Perhaps it's a teenager and she's supposed to be doing something for her mother, setting the Shabbos table or whatever it is. So the Yetzir is not going to come to this lovely, lovely young lady and say, oh, just lie in your bed, lay us around and tell your mother you don't want to do it because she's a lovely young lady and she's not going to behave that way. So the Yetzirah says, you know, you didn't dive in Mincha yet. You should dive in Mincha now, right? Yetzirah comes to us in the guise of something positive. That's called a from Nefesh or a Hasidisha Nefesh habamis. And that's... In some ways related to the concept of iscafia that we have to recognize that and push that away, even though it's such a positive thing, right? So we have to realize that iscafia is not about pushing away things that are forbidden. Iscafia is about really recognizing that there are things that are perfectly permitted, but we need to delay gratification because that's not what's good for us right now. What's good for us is to do the order of the day, to do the thing that's actually going to bring us closer to Hashem, because it's the correct thing for us right now. When it comes to educating young people or educating ourselves, you know, the Yechid vamuna is called chinuch katan, right? The right. education of a young person, but it's really the education of our nefeshali kiss. So when it comes to educating anybody of any age, one of the important things that makes the education so solid is knowing what the parameters are and when I have to delay gratification and when I really have to focus on the task at hand. So what that looks like in a classroom is a student who always needs to run out of the room. How long can you delay that? Now, we're not obviously not talking about the person needs something for their health or well-being. We're talking about just a child that seems to constantly want to jump up and run out of the room. Can you do a scafia Right. And it sounds so cool when you say that to a kid, can, can you do a scafia? I have a friend who, when she would serve dessert, she would tell her kids, see if you can practice this scoffia. So her kids got to doing things like when the main course came and they didn't want the chicken or the broccoli, they were like, <laughs> "I'm practicing ascotia," <iscachia."> right? <laughs> and you know that's a little bit of a, a misuse of the concept, but the idea is that we can teach kids this from a very, very young age, and it's it's such a healthy way to live that not everything I want is what I need, and you know there are many quotes in Hayyim Yam and and different places in Hasidus where we learn about this idea of, of I don't have to have everything I want right now. No. Okay, so it's so interesting.
1: I want to specifically focus on education. I feel like that's really your expertise and that's how you began this concept. Obviously, Escoffia applies to a lot of different areas of life, but specifically teaching children or teaching growing young adults that not everything that you want right now is necessarily good for you. I feel like not just in divine service, but also just in being a healthy person, recognizing that there are certain things that you might want right now that just aren't good for you. Like right now I might want to stay up till 4am. And part of being like a mature, healthy person is that even though right now, I don't want to go to sleep, I still make the decision to go to sleep. So that's technically a scofia, but it's because I know that tomorrow morning I'll be exhausted. So sort of like teaching them that that Escoffia for a godly purpose or that Escoffia for a moral purpose is really something that serves them personally.
0: Yeah, that's really an excellent point because iscafia can be something exactly like you mentioned, right? As long as the end goal is what will bring you closer to the proper service of Hashem. That is the ultimate goal. If That's the ultimate goal then what are the sub-goals along the way? Being a healthy person, being a happy person, being a, a socially effective person, being a knowledgeable person. Those are all sub-goals along the way of the big goal, the end game, serve Hashem with joy, right? How do we get there? Anytime a young person is going to delay gratification, there's something that's going to improve their health improve the way they socialize, improve their relationships, improve their learning. That's a scaphia. I think this staying up late is, a, is the greatest example. I mean, this is this is a battle that every parent of children, especially teenagers, knows right. very, very well. It's, come on, you have to go to sleep, don't you? know? if you go to sleep earlier, you'll be able to do better on the test because you'll be more rested. And then there's that, you know, the from Yetzirah saying, no, I have to study more, I have to learn more. No, that's probably not what you need to do right now. What will serve you better in the goal of gaining more knowledge and the goal of succeeding in school? Which again, all these are sub goals in the end goal of serve Hashem with joy. Well, doing better on your tests so that you get into the school that you want to, so that you feel accomplished, whatever that's going to do for you. You know, that's the sub goal right now and whatever's standing in the way. Even if it looks like a good thing, we can push that aside and say, "I'm going to focus on the big goal." The earlier we teach this skill and this this avaida to kids, the easier it is to practice as they get older. And I, I say this all the time. I call this kafia muscle, like any muscle that you need to exercise. You know, one of my kids lifts weights. So first it was five pound weights, and then it was ten pound weights, and then it was fifteen pound weights, and the more you lift the heavier weight, the easier it becomes and build the muscle. Escafia works the same way. It's a muscle. And the more we exercise it, the better we get at it.
1: In your role as a teacher, and your role as a principal, when did you first begin to recognize that escafia was something that your students could really use as a tool to better approach their lives? Great question.
0: I think this was a gradual realization. And the more I learned Tanya, the more I really became aware of how the concepts in Tanya are things that really help us live the best lives that we can. So I learned Tanya when I was in high school a little bit. We didn't cover very much. And I always wished that I learned more. And when I started the school 15 years ago, I knew I wanted to start the day with Hayyamem and Tanya. To start the day, teaching Tanya meant I had to learn a little bit of Tanya, more than every the few that I learned in school. And I had to cover it every day. And I have to say the first few years were really hard. Like I tripped my way through it. I struggled my way through it. I read Adin Steinsatz. I read Shirin Beseferat Tanya in Hebrew. I read, you know, Lessons of Tanya in English anything I can get my hands on to try to make it more real and more practical. And when I really started to get it was when I started to watch Rabbi Josh Gordon's uh, Tanya broadcasts that you can find on Chabad.org. First of all, he's from New Jersey. So right away, that was like, okay, he's my <laughs> we get rabbi. each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Aside from that. His father was my father's mashbia, and our families are very close. Josh is a slightly different generation, like half a generation above me. So I never really got to know him more friendly with his younger sister. But I started watching his, his Tanya videos. And between the jokes about New Jersey and sports and the stories of his father and just the, the way that he brought it down, this was really my first experience with Tanya for real people. It so much helped me to bring concepts like Iskafia, and all these other wonderful, real-life concepts down to my students. And then I met this wonderful teacher by the name of Tanya Lazarov, oh who <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> who, drew, who drew out the Daily Tanya in cartoons. And I was absolutely floored. So that really was a turning point for me. It was that idea that you really could make it that digestible. And I started working harder at it and really talking about these concepts to my students in terms of real practical stuff. I wanted to explain the concept of how we're supposed to dig for our Yurashamay, which Salt Rabbi talks about. In and he says. That a person is supposed to dig for their Yerushalayim within themselves, with the excitement and enthusiasm and the energy that a person would dig for a buried treasure. So I wanted to, I wanted to explain that concept to my student. It was the days Tanya and I thought, but I'm just going to say it, and it's going to, you know, in one ear, out the other. I want this concept to really stick with them. So I brought in a bag of stuff. Recently, we had done some arts and crafts projects with artificial flowers. So I had this bag, like a fancy shopping bag filled with artificial flowers and tissue paper and a whole bunch of other stuff. And at the bottom of the bag was a $20 bill. Nice. And I said, okay, who would like to come up and join me in a little experiment? Nobody really wanted to. I said, there's something in the, in this bag that if you find it, it's yours to keep. So, you know, girls were thinking about it, murmuring, and one girl raised her hands. I said, Come on up. She comes up and she's digging and she's digging. And she's like, you know, sort of casually, you know, moving things around. And as she's moving around, moving things around, I say, by the way, girls, it's a $20 bill. And suddenly she's really digging, digging, and she finds it. You know, within a minute she finds it. And I said, It's yours to keep. And she said, For real? I said, Yeah, for real. She couldn't believe it. Everybody starts clapping. She goes and sits down. I said to everybody, how long did that take? This said it took about a minute or two. And I asked the girl, I said, if it would have taken you longer than a minute or two, would you have continued digging? And she said, yes. I said, how long would you have continued to look for the $20 bill? She said, as long as it would have taken. And I said, well, that's how long we're supposed to dig and the energy and the excitement with which we're supposed to dig for our Yerosham, because it's there within us. And we just have to find it. The idea is that we can make Tanya so alive for our students, but I hadn't really thought about how much I could do it, you know, until about eight or nine years into actually doing it, teaching the daily Tanya and, and it being just sort of a rote lesson, I realized, what am I doing? This has to be really alive. This is so incredible. It's, it's a life toolbox for our kids. And escafia is, is part of the toolbox, teaching that we don't have to have everything we want as soon as we want it. I'm wondering, listening to you,
1: how you can impart the concept of escafia onto your students without it being something that's coming from outside of them. Versus something that they internally become motivated to do. So again, as someone matures, they could come to that point where they're able to withhold themselves from doing something just because they know that it's good for them. How do you teach your students to be intrinsically motivated for something like that when they're teenagers?
0: So I think it's the same way that you teach anybody anything new. And that is give them an opportunity to succeed at it and they will try it again. So you make the stakes very small, you make the goals small, and once the success comes, you now have something to hold in front of them and say, look what you did. Here it is. Let's try this again. Success breeds success. So when we give small chunks of tasks or information and we really tailor it to the ability of the child with the young adult, and they conquer it, they're going to try again.
1: Nice. I like that answer. That's a great answer. I love that. I think that when you're speaking about educating students, it's also about teaching them to self-monitor themselves when it comes to excess so that they don't have to be managed, but they can actually manage their emotions. They can manage their time. They can manage their relationship with Hashem in a way that they can do on their own. I think that's what Escoffia teaches them is that not every instinct and every impulse you have needs to be acted on. Right.
0: And that's a hard lesson. And we try to point it out even in the most subtle ways, like a student is waiting to speak with me. And it's a student who's a little bit impatient, but instead of showing her impatience, she just waits without showing that impatience. The minute she walks into my office, I'm going to say, I appreciated how... Patiently, you waited for me. That's the first thing I'm going to say. That gets internalized. Oh, I'm a person that can wait patiently. And then hopefully the next time she waits patiently again. And now, again, she's exercised her scaphium muscles. I can push off my knee to speak to the person this minute. I am capable of doing that. And literally, our, our staff is doing this constantly constantly finding those little moments where the girl was about to burst into the teacher's room and take something. And instead she stopped herself and said, may I please?
1: Such a powerful tool because Escoffia is basically like the basis of emotional regulation too. It's the moment of pause before deciding whether or not to lash out, how you want to respond, Whenever you choose to respond kindly, even when you're upset, it's because you paused for a second. It, those two minutes before you want to say what you were about to say, you just paused to decide how you actually want to speak or what you actually want to do or whether or not the student actually wants to barge into the teacher's room. Right.
0: Right. And I, I, I think that's called, you know, in parenting literature, it's called catch them being good. But really what you're catching them doing is self-regulating. Right. That's what Iscoffia is. It's self-regulation. But we knew about it from times of the Altareba and, you know, modern psychology is talking about it now.
1: Yeah. I think it's so interesting. Like As you're speaking, I'm thinking that modern psychology speaks so much about self-regulation and being dysregulated and learning how to regulate your nervous system, et cetera. And this is literally the topic of Iscoffia. I never put the two together, that Iscoffia... It's not about controlling yourself. It's about being able to regulate yourself, saying, I'm not an animal who pounces on food, but I could decide what I want to eat. I could tap into myself and say, do I want to eat this right now? You know, like I could make that conscious choice. That's Mm -hmm. regulation. Mm
0: -hmm. Really good. I also use my own personal examples when I I talk to my students and I, I tell them about things that I struggle with, and especially diet is one of the things I struggle with things I have to be careful about in my diet. And and I really struggle with it. And keeping this in mind is really something that's helped me walk by a buffet table or some other setting of of food that I really would like to eat that I know isn't going to be good for me and really say, you know what, I don't need to have this. So I talk about those things with my students so that they see it's human and it's everywhere. You know, you're not struggling with these things just because you're 15. These are life struggles. And that's one of the things that I love. I don't remember if this was you that used this term, but I remember one of our Tanya teachers used this term. And I was like, how does she know that term? I coined that term, a any moment. Was that you? I'm sorry. Yeah. I heard it in high school but maybe it came from
1: you. <laughs> I don't know where it came from. Sure it I love it. Original. But and I mean, when I said it, I remember them saying, "That's Mrs. Gorkin's term." <laughs> 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 yeah, they so they attributed to you. Okay, yeah. That's it's fine. yours.
0: I, I you know what? As long as they they understand it, I don't care if they attribute attributed to me or not. But that that idea of that moment Life is made up of these moments, moments of Eskafia and Mayach al Halev and the Bainani moments where we see that we can succeed in this struggle. And one of my vice principals, chaimushka I don't don't know if she was vice principal when you were there, but she's vice principal now. Chaimushka is constantly saying growth is not linear. So, the idea of a Bainany moment just validates that idea that growth is not linear. It's up and down and up and down all the time. But every time we have an up and we climb that mountain and we stand there at the top for that moment, it motivates us to more success. Nice. Can you give any
1: practical examples from your personal life where the idea of escafia, that pause before choosing to do something, has positively impacted your life? Yes. Go for it.
0: When I started Benoist Chalmesh, it was very impulsive. Now, when I say impulsive, what I mean is for about 20 years, I wanted to do it. And I knew as soon as I graduated high school that this is what I wanted to do. Wow. As a matter of fact, when I I studied in Sarasenia a couple of years after seminary, it was the first year that Sarasenia opened. So I'm really dating myself. And the first class of the first day, the professor went around the room and asked everyone to introduce themselves and what are you doing now and what what would you like to be doing? And when I introduced myself, I said, you know, I said my name and I said, right now I'm unemployed, but I would like to eventually run a girls' high school. Wow. And there was... A, another girl, slightly older than me in the classroom. And she turned to me and like very snidely went, Psh, whoa, big aspirations. I don't have her phone number. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what her name is, but it was something I wanted to do for a very, very long time. Cause I went to a high school that I really, really loved. And it was a small high school with a lot of personal attention. And I really felt like that was the thing that made me, you know, like I wasn't a big school before that. I was kind of nobody or I I didn't matter. I could not show up for a week. I didn't really think it made any difference. And I I was very young. I wanted to make a difference. I used to say to my father, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to change the world. My My father would listen to me and smile. And he always said, work on changing yourself. That's where you start. So I wanted to do something like this. And about 20 years after I first had the idea, a bunch of things fell into place. And I was like, okay, the time is now. I found building and I found some kids that wanted a school. And I found some people that wanted to help me run it. And boom, school. It was really, really hard. And we struggled mightily. And... We struggled for the next few years. One of the things that I learned in the struggle was being impulsive for yourself has a certain set of consequences, but being impulsive for others has much bigger consequences. And so I made a determination that before making any big decisions, even if I thought I knew best, I was always going to consult with at least one other person. And that's been my policy till today. Anything that's really going to be impactful, I'll sit with somebody and I'll I'll hash it out. And that pause thing is where I have to really listen to the other person's voice, even if I think I know, which sometimes is hard to do. Like sometimes you just think you know. You have to listen with your whole minds and your whole heart, putting everything else aside and then make the informed decision. And now I do it more and more. As the older I get and the more experienced I get, the more I do it. And oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And the more I listen to people with less and less knowledge, because I, I came to realize how much perspective every person brings to the table. I think it took me a long time to learn that. So Wow. Yeah. That's a beautiful application of this idea to just
1: pause before acting on your perspective to hear what someone else's perspective is before moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I want to ask you as we end off the podcast, if you could share any tips that you have for someone listening. For me, on how to incorporate this pause into our lives when we're just like impulsively rushing forward. So, there's teaching it to students and how students and children. And then for ourselves, if you're struggling with that, what tips would you give someone on incorporating just one more moment of that into their day? Okay,
0: so here I'm going to reach into something called somatic experience. Somatic experience is something that's very popular now. It's really used a lot in treating trauma, anxiety, etc. But somatic experience, like everything else, like all the gold and silver in the world, was supposed to be used for the Mishkan and the Beis Hamikdash. Somatic experience can be used in Eskafia, and it can be used in helping us to just Take a pause. And actually the word that we use in somatic experience is pause. Okay. Now, the best example I can give you is, is my house on Hoshana Rabbah. Okay. If you ask most Jewish women, what's your least favorite Yamtif, They will tell you Pesach because okay. it's so hard to make Pesach, right? right over with kitchen. Right, turn up the kitchen, the food is all different, right? My least favorite yamtif is Hoshana Rabba. Why? That's original. Yes, I know. (laughs) Life (laughs) seems to be very clear-cut. When things aren't clear-cut, I am easily confused. What's Hoshana Rabba? Is it yamtif? Is it part of Halamite? Should you go on a trip? Should you have a suda? Well, yes, you should do both, right? The guests from the first days are leaving. The guests from the second days are coming. But everybody wants a meal. You have to prepare. You're cooking for the big ends of, end of the grand finale. But you're still serving. And people are tracing through your kitchen because the sukkah is in the backyard. And to me, it's just mayhem. Okay. And I really struggle with Hashanah My kitchen looks like a refrigerator sort of... <laughs> vomited all of it I don't know any other way to describe it like every space of the counter is filled with food some of it's raw some of it's cooked ingredients I just and and, and people passing through and I find myself very stressed in Hashanah Rabba and then you know the last few minutes before Lift mentioned, I'm frantically looking around the house for an extra set of our rabbis to bang 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 really quickly because I didn't have time to have chakras right so when I first learned about somatic experience, about four or five months later, it was Hashanah inevitably, it happens every year. And I'm standing in my kitchen, and I'm about to go into that state of panic. And I suddenly started to do a somatic exercise, standing right there in my mess. And all of a sudden, I found myself breathing. And I found myself calmer. And I realized that I don't have to be in that Hashanah Rabbah messed, crazy headspace. I can really regulate myself. But the thing that really got to me, and this is something that's very easy to do with the word pause. I found myself, I, and when my kitchen is in that state, I find myself looking for things that are right in front of me. And we all do this. And that's because there's actually a psychological, there's a physiological explanation for it. When we're very, very stressed, a part of our brain that's working is called the amygdala and the amygdala is firing stress, you know, react to the stress, but the part of our brain that perceives new stimuli isn't working. And that's our prefrontal cortex. So when you're in a panic, you literally can't see things right in front of you. And there's amazing experiments that you can watch on YouTube with people missing things, like details of things right in front of their faces because they're stressed. Interesting. So what you can do and what I do anytime I'm in my kitchen and, and you know, it's Arab Shabbos, is, is I just remind myself of the word pause. And then I very slowly look around the room, like really, really slowly taking maybe a full minute to a minute and a half to look around the room. Inevitably, I will find the item that I'm looking for right in front of my face. And it was there the entire time. And maybe I spent five minutes looking for it. But as soon as I went into pause mode, I was able to find it. So if we can do this, and by the way, your brain creates new neural pathways. It means you can create a habit of going to the place of pause if you do it about 30 times. So me being, you know, like I always want to try something new. I was doing it three times a day just so that I could get to my 30 times <laughs> instead of doing it. That's very efficient. But, but that's what I'll do. I'll just, when I realize that I'm in that state of panic and I can't find something or I can't focus on something or I have an inspection happening and I, there's one piece of paper that I need and I can't find it anywhere, I go to pause. Pause. Just take it down a notch, and it really works. So that's I like that. That's something that you can do, and it's a yeah, practice. that's very practical.
1: I'm going to do it tomorrow, okay. thirty times, so <laughs> at the end of the day, it's a habit. I'm oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's a that's a great practical way to incorporate a asafia into our life. I like that. Yeah. That pause in the moment of right. stress or
0: you think yeah you think you have to be doing whatever that thing is and it isn't true that's what you need to put aside so that you can do the thing you really need to do and right that's a scaphia
1: that's a scaphia beautiful okay thank you so much thank you for your time thank you and sharing your wisdom i really appreciate it
0: thank you and lots and lots of hatzlacha in your continued human and holy work thank you There it is.
1: The most eye-opening conversation I have had on this topic. I had never considered the idea of iscafia in a way that was a lot broader than just our immediate physical desires. Iscafia is the ultimate tool in making conscious choices. And though it may show up often in superficial ones, it can be extended to our internal emotional world too when we allow it to penetrate there, it becomes a powerful moment of pause where we can ask ourselves before getting on the hamster wheel of our habitual behavior, is this what I want to be doing right now? Is this the person I want to be? Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find me on Instagram at the Tanya Project or via email at humanandholy@gmail.com. gmail.com. If you enjoyed today's episode and could take a quick second to leave a rating or review, it would be so appreciated and it helps other people find the podcast. And if you don't want to miss a single episode, they come out every other Sunday morning, then hit the subscribe button and you'll get a notification whenever a new episode is live. Thanks again, and I hope you have a wonderful day.